Hashem Hashem Naseb Natsliach, Shul Torah, Baruch Hashem, always good to be here in Aventura, the best of center. Shtabach Shemal Ad, we uh, continue to reach more and more people through this uh, live Facebook feed. Uh, last week I think it was uh, 3,000 people uh, watching it, and uh, Baruch Hashem, each week people are watching it, they like it. Um, I guess when you're watching it live, uh, you're more of a uh, part of what's happening at that moment, where sometimes if you miss it, you could always watch it on touranytime.com or our website, bezatashem.org, uh, or YouTube, or any, many other places, Baruch Hashem, are publicizing the Shurim. And uh, Baruch Hashem, another way to disseminate Torah to Am Yisrael, to all of the righteous Gentiles around the world that are looking to uh, do tshuva, to get closer to Hashem, some are looking to convert, some are looking to become righteous Noahides. And uh, without really, uh, you know, we're gonna, I'm not going to elaborate on the same things that we've covered in the past, uh, or, uh, you know, as far as what's happened over these last few weeks with this uh, Mamash war against the Satan himself, uh, where uh, we've had to do everything and anything possible to publicize this uh, potential Chilul Hashem that was happening of bringing a missionary to Boca Raton Synagogue. Uh, Hashem. Uh, the good news is that anyone that's followed it knows that uh, the uh, event was cancelled uh, which is purely Siat Vishmaya. we'll mention a few things about it here and there but overall want to give anyone who doesn't know the good news that the immediate danger is over the problem that we still have today is that the ideology is still there the uh, longer-term danger is still there, and we still have to continue publicizing the truth to Am Yisrael, so we could try to uh, wake as many people up as possible. Uh, and Bezad uh, Hashem, we'll try to do another Musar Shior today to, uh, to connect it to it, to connect it to many other things that Hashem wants us to learn. Um, and again, as I've mentioned many times in the last few Shurim that we've talked about it, this is not a personal battle against any particular rabbi, any particular keilah. The reality of it is, aside obviously from the people that uh, are still fighting for the wrong side, the one that has to lose the most is me. I live there, it's an uncomfortable situation, I can't go to shul anymore over there, I have to change locations, move, and so on. So if I, w- if I was really worried about my own personal convenience, or my family's convenience, especially with a brand new son, Hashem, then this is the last thing that would be on my mind. Why would I want to disturb my own life? So this is one of the things that we learn in this week's parasha, parashat mishpatim. There's many, many things obviously we learn from parashat mishpatim, but the parasha begins with this: Vele mishpatim asher tasim lifnehem. And these are the ordinances, meaning the laws, that you shall place before them. So Chazal explains, what do you mean before them? These are the laws you should give them. These are the laws, period. What do you mean, lifnehim? What do you mean, before them? And one of the sages explains this wonderfully, and it's extremely relevant to us today. When was the last time that you had a very difficult decision to make, where the Satan came to you, and he gave you a very, very profitable proposition? He told you that if you do X, Y, Z against the Torah, you're going to get a huge amount of money. If you do X, Y, Z against the Torah, you'll get a huge amount of kavod. 
if you do X, Y, Z against the Torah, you'll get the most beautiful woman in the world that you cannot touch. That's against the Torah. But at the same token, it satisfies our desires. When was the last time that you can truly say you had a serious test? Test we have every day. To wake up in the morning on time is a tough test. To put tefillin on is a tough test. To eat kosher is a tough test. Obviously, wherever your level is, sometimes it's less tough than others. The closer you are to Hashem Barach, the more meaningless these battles become to you, meaning you're at such a high level that it's no longer difficult for you to do tefillin, it's no longer difficult for you to eat kosher, it's no longer difficult for you to do many of the things that are day-to-day. But each and every single one of us, regardless of where you are, whether you just started keeping Shabbat in the last week, like some of my students, Baruch Hashem, or you started keeping Shabbat a few years ago, like some of my other students, Baruch Hashem, or you've been a from from birth, like some other students, Baruch Hashem. Each and every single one of us gets a test at our level. There's a small test, day-to-day stuff. Somebody just cut you off, you really want to tell them what's on your mind. It's a very tough test sometimes. Anyone that has a short fuse, it's a tough test for them. Somebody that's very lackadaisical, lethargic type of personality, monotone type of speech, it's not going to affect them. Like, yeah, let him pass. He's in a hurry. Doesn't bother them. So for him, it's not a test. Even though both of you are the same exact thing, it's not a test. For you, it's a test that's the equivalent of an atomic bomb. Then, it's not even a fly. It's not even a fly. We said in last week's Miami Shiur, whoever didn't watch it, something that the Gemara says that's truly amazing, if you really think about it. It says that Satan, the Yetzara, and the Malach HaMavet, all the same. And this very same Yetzara is the equivalent of a fly on top of your heart. Hazal says, what? Fly? Annoying little creature. But Hashem obviously created him for a reason. Almost 2,000 years ago, Hazal learned, Rabban Yochanan told us, that we actually already knew from over 2,000 years ago that diseases are carried by flies and mosquitoes. Modern medicine only discovered it in 1882. If they read Gemara, they would have saved some money, cured some people. But nonetheless, here we're talking about a different issue about a fly. It says, Chazal says a fly, a fly on top of your heart is like the Satan. Why? Because just like a fly, you see, if you ever, every time you want to eat something delicious, you want to have a barbecue outside, what happens immediately? especially in this desert heat we have here in Florida. Immediately is a fly. Where's the fly coming? No pachot on top of your burger. He doesn't come like, you know, at the end of the table, just look at you, hey, give me a piece, give me a piece. No, no, no. He goes on top of the burger without invitation. Yeshaw on the burger, Yeshaw on the steak. And you know that two minutes ago he was on poop. That's just the reality. It's annoying, annoying this fly. How many times you shoo him away, what happens? He comes back again. And again, and again, he doesn't leave until you kill him or you decide to just give him the steak and that's it, leave him alone. He's not leaving. 
He says the Yetzirah is the same thing. Yetzirah is on top of your heart, non-stop. He's never going to leave you alone. As soon as you shoo him away, you beat him. Okay, the guy cut you off. You didn't say anything. You were a tzaddik. Fine. He's going to go. Another guy's going to cut you off. Okay, another guy cut you off. You didn't say anything. You got to work. Oh, somebody stole your parking. Somebody stole your parking spot. Okay, I'm not going to say anything. Let me go to work. Let me just get to work. Let me get to work. What do you see? Somebody stole your chair at the office. You have this chair three years. Somebody stole your chair. Who is it? It's the new employee. It's not, it's not naive because they, you know, it's not like so, yeah, new guy, maybe he's a manager. He's higher than you, but he stole your chair. We didn't tell your new manager, hey, listen, give him my chair back. So again, he comes back and he comes back and he comes back. And they get your paycheck and they shortchange you 150 bucks. Why? You have no idea. The part that said that what the memo was going to say is missing. Shortchange, but it's Friday. What are you going to go to the boss? And explain to them once again, you have to go home, Shabbat. But you got to go home, less $150. Then you get to the house, your wife tells you, oh, listen, one of the kids just got, that, that, that broke something, cost us $150. Like, oh, the same $150, I now lost $300. So you already feel you're going into Shabbat, negative $300. He keeps coming back, this flight, he keeps coming back. He's so annoying, he keeps coming back. The Gemara says, that's our job. That's our job in the world is to overcome this fly. Overcome this satan. And there's only one way. There's only one way to do it. Only one way to do it. Of course, on a day-to-day basis, you're going to win some battle, lose some battles. But an overall achievement in your life is by following this week's parasha. When you put Ritzon Hashem, the will of Hashem, in front of yours, you already won. Once you put the will of the Torah, what it says in the Torah, before your desire, before what the fly is trying to encourage you to do, it's the only way you're going to win. Because as soon as you say, oh, wait a minute, okay, the guy just cut me off. I really want to give him a piece of my mind. But you know what? Hashem says, it's not allowed. Why? Because we have my little kippah now. It's more than a quarter. Everyone can see it. I'm going to go next to this guy. I'm going to tell him, da 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 And then he goes, oh, look at how Jews are behaving. So this cutting off situation turns into a chilul Hashem. Worst sin in history. You just destroyed the Bet HaMikdash. Why? Because you cursed at some strange guy that was in a hurry to do whatever he was doing. Maybe he was driving to the hospital. Maybe he's a doctor. Maybe he's a patient. Maybe his wife was in the back seat. And she's about to give birth. Give him some kafschut. And even if you're right, even if he did it just to make you angry, even if he just decided, like, you know what? I just feel like cutting everybody off. Like the guy on the way here, that's what happened to me. He just felt like cutting me off. Why? Because, oh, he runs the world. Still doesn't justify you going and doing whatever you really want to do. Why? Because Ratzon Hashem is... You have to be all goim, light to the nations. What about the guy who stole your parking lot? Your parking spot? Ratzon Hashem is? Find another parking spot. Find another one. Okay, so he stole it. Okay, is it really worth the aggravation, the anger? When we're going to learn in this Mishnah what Hashem says in the Gemara about anger, 
You're going to think twice before you get angry. Causes loss of money. It's considered idol worship. It's all the worst things that could happen come from anger. To such an extent that the Chazal says when someone gets angry, all of Gehenom controls him. All of the servants that are running Gehenom come to you and they go, oh, we're going to run the show now. They talk over, take over your body. It's not a good place to be. How do we beat this? How do we beat the Falcons? $150. The guy shortchanged me 150 bucks after he stole my chair. This new manager. Okay, the chair, you can find another chair. Every time a door closes, another one opens. Maybe you'll find a better chair. Maybe you were too comfortable in this chair, you weren't really as productive. Maybe if you're less comfortable at work, you'll actually do more work. And get a promotion and become the next manager. Or you want to be low-level employee for the rest of your life. If you want to do that, then you should fight for the chair. But if you want to be the manager, you want to be the owner, you want to be the CEO, you want to be on television as the next big entrepreneur, don't worry about it, be comfortable at work. doesn't serve you any good. What about the 150 bucks? As long as you're confident that Hashem runs the world, you shouldn't be worried for a second. Why? Because the will of Hashem. Hashem decided you're going to be short for 150 bucks to see, do you still love me? Do you still love me? Do you still follow the Torah or are you going to be angry the whole Shabbat? Because you're short 150 bucks. And what about when you find out when you get home that your kid broke something? Okay, apparently that was a kapat avonot that I deserved that's much more valuable that, than shalom, my life. Why? Because every time you lose money, the Marat says it's damim, it's blood. It's the replacement of your blood. Which really means someone that has high, high level of emunah, if they lose money, they should say, just like it says in Masechet Brachot, thank Hashem as much for the good as you do for the bad. Thank Hashem for, as much for the bad as you do for the good. Meaning that if you really understood why these bad things are actually happening, why you just lost $150, and you say, wow, amazing. Hashem, let me live another 20 years for what? For another 150 bucks. I'll give him 300. So once you get closer and closer to Hashem Bach, you start understanding why certain things happen. But how do you get to all of this? The beginning of the parasha, Hashem Barach is telling you, you have to make a decision early on. First, always make sure that Amos, Amos comes to the lecture on time, so we can turn on the air conditioning, I don't have to melt. But more seriously, what do you have to do? You have to put the laws of Hashem, the will of Hashem in front of your own. Can if you can, please. Because by the time he actually comes, I may actually end up melting. Listen, triply, you know, blood, or hot blood, we get, we get hot very quickly. So, plus I have these candles over here, they're warming me up. <laughs> so, you have to put you have to put the laws in front of your own will, even if it doesn't make sense to you. Even if you don't like it, even if you don't agree with it, 
even if it disturbs your reality, even if it hurts your kavod, once you decide that you are going to serve Hashem Barach, like Hashem Barach wants you to serve Him, not like you want to, like He wants you, like He wrote for you to do it, everything becomes simpler. Now this whole debacle with the missionary, which for some strange reason some people still claim he's not a missionary, even though there's an actual video that we've showed and highlighted on the internet, where he says, not only is he a missionary, he wants everyone to be a missionary, because that's what he, he trains missionaries. But we're going to ignore reality, because let's not let the facts get in the way of everyone's version of the truth, whatever their version is today. The most difficult part today is the fact that the missionary is the one that actually canceled the lecture. Now even though we know, of course, this is the will of Hashem, Hashem Barach saw the Mesirut Nefesh, of how the team tried to do everything and anything possible for the honor of Hashem, trying to make sure that this disaster doesn't happen, and that uh, we don't have even one Jew in danger. It's not for my kavod, it's not for anybody else's kavod, just for the sake of Am Yisrael. As much as some people like to think that it's for some alternative motive, I have no idea what that alternative motive is, or what it could be, but nonetheless, the whole point was to stop a danger before it happens. Now why is it a problem that the missionary actually canceled it? The problem is that... To find out, how do we find out? We found out from an article that was written where the rabbi says that uh, not only is he upset to announce that the missionary, Matthew Kelly, is not coming, but he cried. He cried at the news that he's not coming. Now, I don't know, the last time the Rishon Letzion biggest rabbis in the world came to a certain town whether it's Florida somewhere or it's in New York or somewhere else and he was supposed to go to a certain Kela and he didn't go schedule got mixed up he got busy traffic whatever the reason was did you ever see anyone cry because the Gdolador didn't show up in my personal experience never I never even heard of anybody crying because the rabbi didn't come. But a missionary didn't come. We're crying. So this obviously shows that the ideology is a little off. We're still not sure what's happening here. Now why am I mentioning this again? Haven't we harped on this issue time and time again? It's against Allah to bring this guy. We've gone over this. What's the chidush? The chidush is... When you are a rabbi, you are going to, whether you like it or not, you're going to affect and impact your keilah. You're going to affect and impact your followers. Like it or not, you're going to affect them. Right or wrong, they're going to follow you. Many people are going to follow you blindly. It's just a reality. So what ends up happening is that if you see the comments on this article, the worst possible thing that could happen ended up happening. Forget about the fact that they said that we are, we did the Chilul Hashem. 
The ones that went against it, we did the Chilu Hashem. Forget about the fact that they, for some reason, are blaming Rabbi Mizrahi about this anyway. I have no idea why they're blaming Rabbi Mizrahi, even though, yes, of course, he made a little section of his lecture talking about, he didn't start the whole thing, but for whatever reason, they want him to be the Koban. They're blaming him for starting the whole thing and controlling it and, and manipulating everything. No reason whatsoever. Forget about the fact that they're going against a big Mezakeh Rabin, someone that helps people do tshuva. Forget about the numbers. It doesn't matter whether it's a thousand people do tshuva or a million people do tshuva because of it. Irrelevant. If one person did tshuva because of Rabbi Mizrahi, he's already something special. Not according to just me, according to the Torah. And I know for sure that he's made thousands upon thousands do tshuva. How? I know them. My family included. But nonetheless, let's say it's not the Rabbi Mizrahi issue. The issue here is the fact that when you have a big rabbi saying that something that's wrong is right, the Kehillah believes it. So if you look at the comments, what do the comments say? One Kehillah member has been bothering me nonstop for the last few days. He hasn't stopped commenting on, uh, on Facebook to me and on YouTube. And every way he could find me, he's sending me comments of how much of a bad person I am and I don't know this and I don't know that. And I'm just constant insults. The best part about it is this guy is a rabbi. And his hat is this big. He's got one of the furry hats. Nice. Nice, five, six, seven thousand dollars at least. But he's telling me. Now I, I provide him sources. He doesn't want you to read the sources. I'm just bad. That okay. So you have one. That's not so bad. It's not so bad. Then you have another guy. Sends me another email. Sends me a message on Facebook. Says it's time to move from Lago. He knows my address. And he starts. You know, he sends me a little mini threat that it's time for me to move away. Say hey, no big deal. Oh Hashem, in person I'm a little bit more intimidating than I am on camera. Especially when I have Hashem on my side. No problem. Fine, you want to threaten me, threaten me. I can. What's the worst of it all? This is, this is nothing, all this stuff. Inconvenience to me, who cares? What's the worst of it all? Another guy says, Oh, let's send a public apology. Let's send a public apology to Matthew Kelly. As a keilah, we should send out a public apology for an idol worshiper, missionary that steals Jewish souls every day. We're going to send him a public apology. But that wasn't enough. Another member wanted to top him off. He says, you know what? Let's all go and donate to the church. You want to believe me? You don't believe me? Go look at the comments yourself. Let's go donate to the church. Let's go support idol worship. Meaning, if Kelly would have actually come, it would have been better off already. That's how warped this ideology is. That's how dangerous it is. When a leader doesn't take hold, and let's say, listen, according to Allah, I made a mistake. Not allowed. I didn't know he was a missionary. Or I knew, what? it doesn't make a difference. I made a mistake. As long as you're still fighting for your kavod, fighting for whatever reason you're fighting, and telling people you cried over it, and how we're the sinners, and this, and all this nonsense that's going on, 
The Kehillah is going to follow it. And what happens with these comments? All the comments that are saying, hey, look, but this Allah says this, this Allah says this, people that are supporting, but Hashem, this didn't happen, they erase all of those comments, and the comments that say, let's go donate to the uh, church, they don't erase, it's still there. It's probably going to be there for at least another half hour before they delete that. Let's go donate to the church. What are we doing here? Are they going to say that's allowed too? It's allowed to donate to the church? You're going to go... So just put a pestle in the middle of the synagogue and that's it, finish it already. Finish. Change religion. Listen. With all due respect to everyone that knows Torah, everyone that's learned a day of Gemara, not a lifetime of Gemara, a day of Gemara. There's truth and there's falsehood. There's nothing in between. There's no gray. There's yes, there's no. There's Chilul Hashem, there's Kiddush Hashem. That's it. When it comes to Avodah Zarah, Hashem is very, very stringent. So stringent, and so disgusted by it, that he says this in the book of Ezekiel. He says to the prophet... In chapter 20, from verse 32 all the way to verse 39. I'm not going to read you the whole part. But in the beginning he tells us about the prophecy of what's going to happen at the end of times. He says that you want to be like the Goim. And worship idols. But I will roll over you with a strong force in the end. And you'll serve Hashem. In so many words, he's telling Ami, he listen, you want to be like the Goyim. You want to go watch NBA playoffs instead of go to shul and learn Daf Yomi. You want to go watch the Super Bowl, see a bunch of huge people running against each other, trying to kill each other like they did at the Coliseum couple thousand years ago only difference is now they get paid 20-25 million dollars a year back then if they were just alive it was enough instead of going and learning some Musar you want to be the Goyim you want to dress like the Goyim instead of being modest showing your humility showing that you're a Jew being proud of a Jew and Wearing your keeper proudly instead of finding the smallest one in the store or not wearing it at all because Hashem Shalom, anyone would see you outside of the shul with a keeper. You want to make sure you spend at least 15 to 20 minutes doing your hair every day in front of the mirror. Doing your hair. Oh, enough gel. Instead of looking like an honorable person, you want to wear the tightest possible clothes so everyone sees the definition of your body. Interestingly enough, the people that love tight, love tight clothes so, uh, the most are fat people. So it doesn't even look good. Needless to say, it's not allowed, it's not modest. You want to be at the goyim because you're looking at the goyim all day. You say, ah, I want to be like them. It's what he's telling, Hashem is telling him, you want to be at the goyim, but I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to let you. 
one way or another, you will serve me. Before it's over. Before it's over, you will serve me. Either you're going to come serve me to Shure Torah, seminars, and a reality check that's light and beautiful, I'll force you to do it. Sickness, disease, money loss, divorces. You want more problems that happen every single day that I have to deal with? Every day just to listen to the messages on my phone is already like a reality check. It's like Hashem, thank you, thank you Hashem for not giving me half of these problems. One of these problems. Non-stop, issues. people want to kill themselves because they lost some money. People are so anxious they start ripping hair out of their arms. Somebody sent me a text a few or the last couple of days. Like, listen, what do you do if you can't stop ripping te- uh, hair out of your arms? I said, you have to work on emunah. Yeah, but how's that going to help you? I said, because you have anxiety. Oh, so how is emunah going to help? I'm like, well, if you believe that everything is coming from Hashem, and you really, really believe it, you'll have less reason to be anxious. Even though this all made sense, and it's very, very simple to say, it's not necessarily sitting over here like you're feeling in the morning. Sometimes it's sitting over here in the back, sometimes in your pocket, sometimes on a book, on a shelf that you never read. It's not chidushim that no one's ever heard, but it's not necessarily sitting over here all the time. A woman calls me and says, what do I do if I find out, if I found out that my husband is cheating on me, but not just one time, he actually has an affair with the woman already for six months. Kill him? (laughs) That was what I thought also, but I couldn't say it. But do you understand what these problems that people are dealing with every single day Thank you. Thank you, Hashem. Thank you, Hashem, for the rules that you gave me. By following them, I'm doing myself a service. By following these rules, where I think it's like a burden, in the beginning when you don't know the rules, you think it's a burden. There's so many rules, thousands and thousands of rules, that, you know, the 613 mitzvot, that are biblical with seven on top of them, that are rabbinical, break down into thousands of alachot, and I'm, oh, this is too much, how could I do it? And then the next thing you know, you start following him, and you follow this one, and another one, and another one, and eventually you start realizing, wow, a few years into it, it's like, my life is so much better. Due to these rules, I don't have problems with my marriage. Due to these rules, I don't have problems with emunah. Due to these rules, I have a vacation every week. Due to these rules, I actually keep more of what I make because there's bracha in the money. Due to these rules, I really mean it when I say, thank you Hashem for not making me a goy. Every morning. Not that there's something wrong with them. I have many friends that are phenomenal. Goyim that are amazing people, better than many Jews I know. That's not who I'm referring to. I'm referring to somebody who has no direction whatsoever. Just lives like the Greeks. Works on his body. Works on his pocket. Beginning and the end of his life. That's it. He comes from a seed. He's going to turn into nothing eventually. And leave no stamp on the world. 
It doesn't matter if he created Intel. It doesn't matter if he created Apple. No one cares. Okay, so they bought some books. So what? There's no real imprint on the world. His life didn't serve a real purpose because it ended. Whereas when you live like a Jew, you live like a righteous Gentile, your life is eternal. But Hashem is telling us that we're looking so far away from the Mishpatim, from what He says in the Torah. We're so far away from it, but we want to be like the Goyim. He says, I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to let you. Because at the end of times, before every single one of you will have to be in front of the judge and jury and pay the bill, I'm going to give you every single opportunity to do tshuva. You're either going to do tshuva by going to Shuvah Torah on Tuesday nights for two or three hours and then start listening to CDs and then start praying a little bit and then maybe go to a seminar. Nice way to do tshuva. I wish I did tshuva that way. Or you go through suffering. Endless suffering. And if you still don't do tshuva, when the day comes after 120, the shame will be the biggest part of the punishment. Because all you'll see is the opportunities that you've missed for nothing. For five minutes of pleasure. But in this very same section, Hashem is telling us something scarier. In last week's Miami Shior, I went over one of the things that the Rambam mentions in Shmona Prakim. Many times we've heard that the biggest punishment someone can get in this world is not AIDS. It's not cancer. It's not some type of disease. It's not divorce. It's not even death. The biggest punishment someone can get in this world is when Hashem decides, I've had it with you. Doors closed. You will not do tshuva. He removes the person's free will. He will no longer allow that person to do tshuva. Even though it says the charet tshuva always open, and even though in the Gemara Masechet Psachim, it says, listen to everything Hashem says, except if He says tzeh, meaning leave me. Don't ever listen to that. Even if you hear a bat call from Shemaim, like Elisha Acher said, Elisha Acher he said, listen, I heard. Shuvah Shavavim, everyone return, you little rascals, except Achel. Achel, you're not welcome. Everyone can do tshuva except you. Because if you remember that Torah that I taught you in Masechet Psachim, you're not supposed to listen to that. So even if you hear a call, a heavenly voice saying, you can't do tshuva, don't listen. But the Rambam says there is a time where Hashem says, I've had it with you. Mamash, I've had it with you. And this is one of the sources.
verse 39, chapter 20 of Ezekiel, it says, Vatem bet Israel ko amar Adonai Hashem, ish gelulav lechu avodu v'achar, im enechem shomim elai ve'et shem kadshi lo tichalelu, od b'matnotechem u'begilulechem. And you, O house of Israel, thus said the Lord Hashem, let every man go serve his idol, since you do not listen to me. And do not profane my holy name any longer with your gifts and your idols. He says, you don't want to listen to me? You don't want to fulfill my mitzvot? Do you think you have a better way? You want to bring a missionary? You want to go do idol worship? You want to go donate to a church? Go. Go serve your idol. Just stop violating my name. Stop desecrating my name. You want to go worship idols? Go already. Go, go. Get out of my face. In so many words, this is what Hashem is telling you. You want to go do it? You want to, you want to be part of the church? Go. In the Yerushalmi Masechet Ta'anit, it says that even though Hashem has an extraordinary amount of endless patience, he still demands what's his. Yes, he'll be patient for you, with you for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, however many years allotted to you. But eventually, it's time to close the store. Eventually, it's time to collect all the outstanding bills. And the Rambam says just the fact that there's a small possibility that Hashem Echem, a person will get a punishment where Hashem says, go worship an idol. to stop desecrating my name. Just the fact that there's a small possibility. Small, not big. We're not saying 50% chance. We're not even saying 1% chance. We have no idea. He says just the fact that there is a chance that Hashem can close the store on you and you're not welcome in, so you have to do tshuva on the spot. If you really have any irat whatsoever. The fact that it's even a possibility for sharet tshuva to be closed should scare you to death. Because everyone thinks, no, no, when I get married, I'll do tshuva. When I have kids, I'll do tshuva. When the kids grow up and they're out of the house, then I can do Shabbat and comfort, no craziness. When I make more money, I'll do tshuva. When I get my car, I'll do tshuva. When I get the new house, I'll do tshuva. I'll do tshuva, tshuva, tshuva. Later on, later on. But there's a special Mishnah for a person like that. Someone says, I'll sin, and then I'll do tshuva. They don't allow to do tshuva. Just the chutzpah of saying, uh, you know it's a sin, you're going to do the sin, but later on you're going to do tshuva like you're doing Hashem a favor. Just that is enough chutzpah where that Hashem and that punishment can happen to them. So for all of those that for whatever strange reason still think it's okay to listen to a missionary, talk about anything. Forget about whether it's motivation or it's J.C. Penny. It's irrelevant. Even if he came to a shul to talk about Papa Smurf and Mama Smurf and how they have all these little Smurfs around them with the little cat chasing them and Gargamel in the background. He's still not allowed to hear him. Still not allowed to hear him. Still not allowed to be within four amot of him, six feet of him. Why? 
Because chas v'shalom, you like his papa smurf and mama smurf so much that you go read his J.C. Penney book too. Just the possibility that you that you like what he says and you send him an email, that's already too much. That's already too much. How can we overcome our desire to be like Goyim? Because in our world today, it's very easy to want to be like Goyim. You turn on a television, Toavat Hashem that it is, anyone that still watches television, hopefully nobody here, but anyone that still watches television, five seconds into it, you want to be like exactly like the person on TV. Even if it's a commercial. Especially if it's a commercial. Whether it's the guy that they're shooting at, or the guy that's shooting. Or the guy that's taking a shower, or the guy that's eating a Subway sandwich. You want to be like whoever's on television. You're not thinking, no, it's not modest, it's modest. You're not thinking about anything. You're just, oh, yeah, I want to eat a sandwich. I want to take a shower right now with that Dove soap. I want to be like them. I want to break out of prison. They have a whole show about breaking out of prison. I used to like that show. I want to break out of prison. Let me go into prison so I can break out of it. Immediately you want to be like a goy. How do we get to a point of not wanting to be like a goy? How? If you ask yourself for a moment, what is the desire of Hashem? What does He want? For a second. Already you've beat 50% of your Yetzirah. If you're asking, that means you care. You care what His will is. And if you find out that your Father in Heaven doesn't want you to do it, already kills half your desire. The other 50% is your desire. As we continue in Avot, Sechet Avot, Bet Tetvav, 2.15. Hem amru shlosha dvarim. Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Yichvot chavercha chaviv alecha keshelcha, Vaal tii noach likos, Veshuv yom echad lifne mitatcha, Translation. They each said three things. They is referring to the students of Rabban Yochanan we've been talking about for the last few weeks. So the first among them is each one of them has said three core foundational things that they would, according to Chazal, base every single one of the drashot based on these three things. They came and gave lectures for 20, 50, 70 years. And every single one of their lectures, the foundation of the lecture, is these three things they said. We have a lecture, we repeat the same story twice. Hey, hey, come on, no, you're boring me already. Should have told me, I wouldn't have come. Let me know when you have new stuff. 
new material. But here we have the greatest minds that ever lived, holy of holies. They repeat everything in every lecture. How could this be? Because these three things they pick are so vast. You could still use them as a foundation for an endless and infinite amount of lectures. Especially when you have an extraordinary amount of Torah like they did. So Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinus is the first one among them that says, he starts the list like he did in the last few weeks as well, last few Mishnayot. Rabbi Eliezer says, let your fellow's honor be as dear to you as your own. Do not anger easily. Repent one day before your death. Do tshuva one day before you die. Warm yourself by the fire of the sages, but beware of their glowing coal, lest you be scorched. For their bite is the bite of a fox, their sting is the sting of a scorpion, their hiss is the hiss of a serpent, and all their words are like fiery coals, or fiery coals. In the beginning, it was relatively simple to understand, it became a little bit more difficult to understand as it got to the end of the Mishnah, but nonetheless, a lot of it is self-explanatory. First, he's telling you, honor of your friend should be as important to you as your own honor. Don't get angry. Easily. Repent one day before you die. And develop a special relationship with the tzaddikim, with the sages. But be careful at the same time. Be close to them, close enough to be have a relationship, but far enough where you're not too comfortable. That's the grand scheme of things, what he actually just said. Now we're going to delve into some of the details. First and foremost, if you look at the basics of what he said here, it looks like nothing genius. It looks actually common sense. So if you're going to tell me, listen, your own's going to give a lecture, and he's going to give a lecture about anger. I was like, oh, you know, what the hell? What does your own know? Okay, she's so going to talk about anger. They're talking about money. They're talking about basic things. Say, Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos, who knows Maaseh Merkava, knows how the heavens work, knows Maaseh Bereshit, knows how Hashem created the world, knows the secrets, knows how to talk to angels, to Shadim, knows the ways of the world, knows how to speak to trees. You're going to teach me don't get angry? That's the subject you picked? All the knowledge you have? can't tell me, listen, the way the world was created, Hashem did this and did that, all this stuff, wow. Give me a shiur about Kabbalah. Make me move this camera with my mind. Like this one Avrech that I know in Jerusalem, he's able to bend a spoon with his mind. Through Kabbalah that he has. Teach me how to bend spoons. 
I don't know how much how much that's valued anymore, but the point is, if I come here and I say, show to you guys, two hours shiur, three hours shiur about anger, or I say, you know what, let me show you the other option, and I bend this candle with my mind, you're probably like, more people going to show up next week. The two hours shiur, like, ah, listen, you could have done this whole three hours shiur in 15 minutes. But the candle, even if it took me an hour to melt the candle with my mind, all places packed next week. So, Abi Eliezer ben Olkenos, is we respect my friend? That's the chidush. Anger, don't be angry. That's the chidush. So first and foremost, you'll notice that every single one of the sages did the same exact thing. Every one of them picked something simple as the foundation to all of their teaching. Why? Because the Torah must be relevant to everyone. If you're going to learn Torah yourself, learn whatever you want. If you're interested in it, you understand it, you connect to it, learn whatever you want, enjoy. If you're at that level. Now if you just did Shuva a year, two years, five years ago, and you're going to start telling me, listen, I'm going to go start learning Kabbalah or Zohar, I'm going to tell you, you're going in the wrong direction. It's not for you. You have to be an expert in Alacha, Gemara, Chumash. You have to be an expert in a lot of Torah that at the very least is going to take you 20 plus years before you even touch Kabbalah, real Kabbalah, not Kabbalah sent of nonsense. Real Kabbalah, real Zohar. Can't touch it. It's not for you. It's not for me. It has nothing to do with your intellect power. It has to do with Kedushah. You have to be a certain level of holy in order to get there. To even know what a certain level of holy is, you already have to be a certain level. Meaning, if I tell most people, listen, you have to be a certain level of holy, most people are like, oh, whatever, I pray three times a day. I learn a couple hours a day. I'm holy. No, you're not. You're special to Hashem, but to be holy, like Kabbalah holy, you have to purify your body, purify your eyes, purify your neshama, do all types of things that are like far, far, far away from us. Now you ask, the next natural question should be, well, you mentioned some things that the Zohar says from time to time. These are very basic things that my teacher would teach me or something like that that are just one-liners. Not that I study the Zohar or most people that speak about the Zohar in, uh, in, in, in uh, lectures, they don't actually study the Zohar most of the time. Just that you hear from somewhere or you read something basic level. You're not going into the delve of the, of the deepness, of the depthness of the Zohar. Because why? Because this Zohar and this Kabbalah also includes the names of angels. And those angels are very, very serious. Where if you say their name, and you're not at a level of holiness to say their name, cause a lot of problems for you. Name the problem, it'll cause it. It's not a rumor that there's actually a hospital in Israel specifically meant for people that went crazy learning the Zohar. It's not a rumor. How do I know it's not a rumor? I saw it. It's right next to Rabbi Ephraim's house. It's in Hagenov. 
the overwhelming majority of the patients are from Zohar. Some of them were holy people, just not at that level. So you have to be careful. But again, if you look at the sages, they're not teaching you Zohar. They're teaching you basic level Torah. Why? Because they want to teach you something that you can take with you forever. Regardless of what level you are, regardless of whether you're about Shuvah you for a year or two, or you're already in it for 25, 30, 40, 50 years, you can take all of this and delve into it and go into it deeper and deeper and see that it never ends. Now, how do you know where to learn? When we talk so much about how it's very, very difficult to find a real rabbi today. You have some rabbis are telling you things that are difficult to hear, but are nonetheless in the Torah. And some rabbis are telling you you're a tzaddik, even though you don't even keep Shabbat. You drove to shul on Shabbat, hey, come on tzaddik, I'll give you an aliyah. Or sometimes they like you so much, they tell you, listen, why don't you give us a dvat Torah on Sudashlishit? Okay, I'll read the newspaper. They let him read the newspaper. I know of a place like this. They actually let a guy read a newspaper on Sudashli Cheat. So when you have these Hamdanim, these people that kiss up to the wrong people, and then you have people that are saying things that are a little hard to hear but are nonetheless true, how do you pick? Also, doesn't necessarily mean that every single rabbi, even if he does tell the truth 100%, doesn't necessarily mean he's the perfect fit for you. You could only have a limit of 40% of your Torah from him, and maybe the other 60% spread amongst five other people that are a little lighter. But you can't have someone that tells you falsehood. So, Gemara Masechet Chagigah, page 15, says, you're only allowed to listen to a rav if he looks like an angel. Meaning, if his behavior is similar to an angel's, he could be a Rav. How so? An angel doesn't have free choice. An angel fulfills 24 hours a day. There's no breaks. Whatever Hashem wants, that's what they do. If your Rav is going to read every part of the parasha, including the parts you don't really want to hear, especially parashat Bechukotai, parashat Azinu, parashat Kitavo, all the real details of what really happened in Egypt, all the real details of what really happened when we left Egypt, where 80% of Am Yisrael actually died, the real details. Not, oh yeah, we went out and the biggest problem was that we had matzah instead of bread. If he tells you the real details without putting his rosy color glasses on it, you listen to him. But if he tells you, listen, you know the Holocaust? No, Hashem didn't do that. Hashem is only good. Hashem couldn't have brought the Holocaust. He's only good. It says in the Torah, Hashem is good. So how could someone that's so good bring the Holocaust so they explain it in a different way. They say, no, Hashem, He just left. Which is, by the way, 100% kfirah. 
heresy. To say Hashem left or Hashem is not present in any place is 100% kfirah. So no, Hashem didn't cause the Holocaust. It was uh, just that we weren't so good. So Hashem just let them beat us up. As if they had their own choice that overrode Hashem's choice. Hashem loved us, they didn't, so therefore He let them beat, them, beat us up and kill six million of us. This is also kfirah. Everything and anything that happens in this world only happens if Hashem wills it to happen. Rule in the Torah to such an extent that the Chazal explained to us that even a leaf, a leaf, does not fall off of a tree unless Hashem wills it to fall. Meaning the leaf has to call up, says Hashem, can I fall off the tree? No, no, not today, tomorrow. Okay, he stays there. Oh, today you fall. Falls. A leaf. The tree has tens of thousands of leaves. One leaf doesn't fall unless Hashem says, you're allowed to fall. So you think that Hashem is going to let one Jew die without Hashem saying, it's time for him to die. In the most gruesome, horrible way there is. Hashem willed it. As hard as it is to hear, it's what's written in the Torah. And it's time for us to take off the rosy colored glasses and start seeing a reality. That's why Masih Chagah says, your Rav, he has to be like an angel, meaning his own personal opinion is meaningless. His own rosy colored glasses, meaningless. What does it say? What does he say? If the two are a match, that's your Rav. That's your Rav. But if he tells you you're a tzaddik, despite the fact that you're eating taref on a regular basis, it's not your Rav. It's a hamdan. If he tells you, listen, come to shul, yeah, but for the Rav, I drive on Shabbat. You know, I don't, uh, I heard it's not allowed. No, 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 just come, just come. Don't worry, we have a different shita. Park in the parking lot that's two minutes from the Beknesset, so nobody sees. If no one sees you in the kila, no one sees you park the car, no one sees you drive, then it's not really the same level of Chilul Shabbat. This is the new sheet, this is the new ideology that you have in the world. People say, no, no, just the parking lot can't be next to the shul. It's somewhere else. It's like two minutes away. Like God's not there. Everyone's scared of the kila, but they're not scared of God. Park two minutes, five minutes from the shul. If nobody sees you, it's not that bad. There's no bigger shtuyot in the world in this sentence. First of all, God's everywhere. Second of all, as far as Chilul Shabbat, Bepharesia, a public sin, it doesn't mean that ten people have to see you drive on Shabbat, have to see you smoke on Shabbat, have to see you play with your iPhone on Shabbat. No. If you actually look at the Gemara, what does it say? Ten people have to know that you're doing it. You're known as a guy that smokes on Shabbat by ten people. Ten people know you smoke every Shabbat. That's Chilul Shabbat B'Faresia. Ten people know you drove to Shul. That's Chilul Shabbat B'Faresia. 
someone drives to shul for 20 years, everyone knows he's Jewish. Not only that 10 people, the whole keilah, and people that don't even go to that keilah. No. Everyone knows. So, Chazal says, first and foremost, pick someone's going to tell you the truth as Hashem wrote it. Not a uh, different politically correct version of it. Number one. Second thing is, he says, your fellow's honor, your friend's honor should be as dear to you as your own honor. Yikvot chavecha chaviv alecha. And then right after it, he talks about how don't get angry quickly. Now, Chazal says, wait a minute. Why does it say, don't get angry quickly? Shouldn't it say, don't get angry? Getting angry. If you look at the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, page 152, says that you getting angry is idol worship. Take care about the Gemara. Sorry, 105, not 152. 152 is a different uh, story about anger. 105, it says this. If one tears his garment in his anger, someone gets really upset, rips his shirt on Shabbat. Not allowed to rip or he breaks his utensils in his anger. Takes the spoon, throws it across the room. Takes the remote control, throws it across the room. I saw this video one time. The wife didn't like the fact that her husband was uh, watching so much TV, so she played a prank on him. She got a second remote and she was hiding in the background and he was watching this silly soccer game. So every so often, as soon as they got close to the net, she shut off the TV. And the guy's like, looking. How is this happening? What's wrong with this TV? And he's losing his mind. He's throwing the popcorn on the television. He's flipping the table. He's losing his mind. Eventually, after she shut it off like four or five times, he takes the TV, smashes the TV to pieces, smashes the computer. If that's what the TV is going to lead you to, you probably shouldn't watch it. Says you take your remote, you throw it across the room. Did he get another TV? Probably. Or, this is a very interesting one, or he scatters his money in anger. What does it mean he scatters his money in anger? Takes whatever money he has in his pocket, just throws it in the air. Who does this? Who just takes a bunch of money and just throws it in the air? Anyone can think of an idea? Gambler. Ah, Now, in my sinful days, Hashem... Have mercy on me when I used to play poker. Now, poker, you don't play against the house, you play against another person, which, as I have mentioned in previous lectures, is not allowed and in any condition. It's considered 100% gezel, meaning stealing. Because when you win, even though there's rules to the game, 
Gambling is not allowed for multiple reasons, which we'll cover very, very quickly. Number one reason, it's considered gesel, meaning that when you win, even though there's rules to the game, the other party doesn't want to give you the money. Even though he says, listen, if I have one, one card and you have inferior cards, then you owe me money. That's the rules to the game. Both of you go into it with an agreement that whoever has the best cards is going to win. The reality is that even after he follows the rules and he knows that you have superior cards and he knows that you are entitled technically to the money, he doesn't really want to give it to you. It's his money. He doesn't want to give it to you. So he's giving you the money against his own will, which is the definition of stealing. So the fact that someone is winning in gambling is actually losing in Shemayim. That's one. And there's no thief in Ganeden. Thieves are not allowed in Ganeden. They have to come back in a Gilgul and pay it back. So that's one. Two, gambling is considered something that's Mushab Letzim. Mushab Letzim means that it's a place of clowns. It's a place that is not appropriate for a Jew. It's not a place where there is a Tzadikim, even though some people unfortunately have a kippah on. It's not a place for Tzadikim. It's a place for people that care about this world only and nothing else. So that's another thing. Another point is it's Chilul Hashem. Someone that knows you're a Jew says, Hey, look. See, Jews are gamblers. Jews are good gamblers. Jews are bad gamblers. Whatever he says, you have a Chilul Hashem on your hands. Worst possible sin there is in Judaism. You just desecrated Hashem's name. This is a very, very, very serious problem that the people just don't take seriously. They think that, ah, whatever, I'm only gambling a uh, $5,000. I'm only gambling uh, X amount of dollars. So to give you a little bit of an understanding of how horrible gambling is, in the Mishnah in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 24, it says, These are the ones that are ineligible to be judges or witnesses. Someone... You have to have a witness. For example, Hashem, two sets of students got married. You have to have witnesses. In the Chupa and Kiddushin, you have to have witnesses. Right? These witnesses have to be kosher people. They have to be qualified to be witnesses. Not like the witnesses in a secular court where it's just any average joke could be a witness. They send them uh, the uh, jury card. They send them the witness card. They send them all these things. Well, people could be a witness. Just if you were there, you say you were there. Someone thinks you were there. Maybe, maybe not. Or you're an expert. Even if you weren't there, as long as you know about it, you could be there. All types of things about it. No, no. In Judaism, to be a witness, you have to be qualified. You have to be someone that is reliable, someone that has Yad Shemaim, someone that has a boss in Shemaim that you acknowledge at all times. But there are certain things that disqualify you from being a witness. So for example, if you're Mechalel Shabbat, someone's Mechalel Shabbat is no longer considered a valid witness. Why? Because he's no longer considered part of Am Yisrael until he starts keeping Shabbat again. The Judaism is on suspension. But that's for Chilul Shabbat. So let's say the guys uh, keep Shabbat, Tfilin, Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi, goes to Nets every day, he has a etrog that's meudar, gives staka, gives 20%. Not 10, 20% staka. Tzadik, No? He goes gambling on a regular basis, not like once in his life. He goes gambling on a regular basis once a month. He goes to the casino 
once a month he has a game with a bunch of his friends of Texas Hold'em or poker or, or uh, whatever other form of gambling, the Mishnah, which is even before the Gemara, one who plays with dice, meaning gambler. Somebody that's a gambler is no longer valid to be a witness. They can't be a witness at a wedding. They can't be a witness in a court. Meaning, even if they saw somebody do something, you can't take their opinion. Yeah, but I saw him murder him. I saw him steal. I saw Your opinion is no longer valid. No longer valid. So, the Torah says that someone that gambles is a very, very serious offender of the Torah, also someone that uh, lends money with ribit, with interest to another Jew, and many, several other things. So now, when you play poker against other people, not that I'm trying to teach anybody poker here, but just to give you an understanding of how horrendous the ideology is of the secular world, the whole point of the game is not to have the best cards. Don't let anybody fool you. The best poker players in the world are not the best poker players in the world because they're the luckiest. They're not the best because they always get the best cards. Bluffing. They're the best because they make you think they're the best cards, especially when you are angry. Meaning, there's a word in, in poker lingo called tilt. The whole object of the game is to get you my opponent on tilt. What's tilt? Gets you off your norm. Normally, you're calm, collected, focused. You could do the math in your head in a second. You're not emotional. You're making decisions that are objective. You're paying attention to every detail of what I'm doing, how I'm moving my eyes, how I'm moving my lips, whether I'm smiling, whether I'm folding my hands, whether I have my hands like this, you're looking at every single tell, every single thing that I can do that you can tell whether I'm telling the truth or not. But once I got you angry, or someone got you angry, or something got you angry, all bets are off. You're no longer the same, you're no longer clear, you're no longer able to do anything. And you get to a point where you just play out of anger. And what do you do when you play out of anger? The guy says, all in. You say, so in, all right. You don't, have, you don't even know what your cards are. But you're so angry that you have no idea what you're doing. You cannot control your emotions. And you do the stupidest things in the world. And that's what makes the best players in the world the best players in the world. They don't necessarily get on tilt very quickly. And everyone else does. It's just a better control of emotions. So... If you ask yourself, what is this Gemara said? Somebody scatters money. Who scatters money? Someone that's on tilt. So now, so whoever tears his garments, whoever breaks his utensils, whoever scatters his money in, in, in his anger, he should be in your eyes as one who is performing idolatry. Says so you see somebody breaking stuff, tearing up his clothes, throwing his money in the air. In your eyes, you should view him, oh, that's Matthew Kelly, idol worshiper. That's the idol worshiper we've been talking about for the last three weeks. That's what they do. They pray to a foreign god. Not the God of Israel. Why? 
Why? Why? Okay, so he threw his money around. What does that have to do with idol worship? So he ripped his clothes up. Maybe he has a new new shirt he wants. Maybe he has a lot of money. He just doesn't care. Why is it, What does one thing have to do with the other? What does him being angry have anything to do with idol worship? For thus is the craft of the evil inclination. Shekach umanuto shel yetzerara. Ayom omer lo ase kach, ulemachar omer lo ase kach. Ad sheomer lo avod avodah zara. Veolech veoved. He says, because these things that you do out of anger, you're doing them because yet you've gotten to a point where the Yetzirah is controlling you. Your evil inclination is controlling you. Today it tells you, throw the money around. Tomorrow it's going to tell you, work overtime to make the money back. Forget about learning Torah. Today it says, throw the remote across the room. Tomorrow it says, go buy another TV and watch TV extra. One day the Yetzirah tells you this, the next day it tells you that. All the way to the point where the Yetzirah controls somebody, Barminan, to such an extent where one day he's going to get them to say, go worship an idol, and he doesn't. Why? Because someone that lets the Yetzirah control them to such an extent has turned the Yetzirah into their idol. Meaning, they've turned the Satan into their God. The Satan is controlling everything they're doing. The clothes, she, she has two things to wear. She has one, let's say, short sleeves, not modest short shirt. And the other one is, long sleeve, loose shirt. Even better looking. But she, yeah, but it's hot. Short sleeve. That's Yetzirah. Loose skirt, tight skirt. Oh, the tight skirt it looks better on me. That's Yetzirah. Oh, I have this tzaddikah from the UK. She always asks me these good questions. Religious woman, but she has a lot of different people that come to her and uh, ask her questions. But when we try to help them, and she says, one of my, one, a few, a few of these people have come to me with the same question. I don't really know what to answer them. He said, what does Hashem really care if the skirt, okay, so Allah says it has to be a certain length beyond the knees. Meaning the skirt has to be six, at least six inches beyond the knees after you sit down. After you sit down, not before you sit down. After you sit down, because if it's before you sit down, by the time you sit down, it shows your knee. In reality, it's supposed to be all the way to your foot. But if you want to go to the bare minimum of the halacha, then you go six inches beyond the knee. That's what the halacha is. So she says, what's the big deal if she does it two inches less? It's four inches. Or not even four inches, it's whatever, it's on the knee. So what if it shows the knee? She's under the table, no one sees her knee. She's under the table. What's the big deal? Hashem really cares? Shem really cares about these two inches? It's a good question, no? Two inches. So let's think about it this way. This was my answer. And I've mentioned to you guys as as an example before. Let's say you have a million dollar deal. New customer came, says, listen, as long as you send me the email with all of the information, 
on Monday at 8 o'clock in the morning, you got the million dollar deal. I already spoke to the board, spoke to the CEO, you're in. Just send me all the work by 8 a.m. on Monday morning. You slave for three months, get all the work together, you finish the job. Early, a week early. Try to call the guy, he's out of town, he's out of the country. So you know the only way you can reach him is through email. You send the email a week early. Returned undelivered. Problem with the email. You keep sending emails every day, every day, every day. You keep sending, keeps giving you return email, return email, return email, error, error, error. It's not reaching the destination. You're ripping all your hair out after a week. You've become bold. You started as Bon Jovi, you ended up as a sting. You have no hair on your head. Monday morning at 8.05, Mr. Jones calls you, he says, Steve, what happened? Why didn't you send the email? I thought you were finished. He says, yes, I've been finished and I've been sending you the email. He goes, okay, and what happened? He goes, it's undelivered. He goes, what email do you have? And you read the whole email to him. He says, yes, Steve, you're right. You have the right email. There's only one problem. What's the problem? You forgot the dot and dot com. The dot. Not the whole email is wrong. Not the name is wrong. Just one dot. One dot. And you lost the deal. One dot. In the Bet Migdash, we had Kobanot. Sacrifices. Only way you can do full tshuva, you have to bring a sacrifice to the Bet Migdash. Assuming that your sin was Bashogeg. Unintentional sin. If it was Bemezid, you may get the death penalty. Someone's Mechalel Shabbat on purpose gets death penalty. There's no tshuva. Not like today. You can still do tshuva. In the days of the Bet Migdash, someone has violated Shabbat on purpose and there was witnesses. And he was warned and so on, went through the process, but he's still a violator of Shabbat, he gets death penalty. There's no kobanot. Kobanot is only for someone that did it unintentional. And Chazal says the fact that they killed him, they gave somebody as a Mechel Shabbat death penalty by stoning. They were doing him a favor. Why did they do him a favor? Because at least he won't be a Mechel Shabbat anymore. This is Chazal. You have a problem, go talk to them. So, this, I actually got a the very disturbing video today. It was posted on one of our groups. And people ask all the time, okay, the Bet HaMikdash is no longer around, unfortunately. Sanhedrin is no longer able to do death penalty. But the Gemara says that the punishments are still applicable. But they're just heavenly now. Meaning... We can't go give death penalty to anyone. There's no Sanhedrin. But Hashem still gives the death penalty. There's different types of death penalties and He still gives the death penalty. So people say, okay, well how do you get stoning? And they sent a video of a guy just walking around with his wife or whoever it was next to him. He's walking around in the street, like a regular person. And all of a sudden you see, I mean this is from a security camera. You see that the security, it's at least... 150 yards away from the highway. The highway is on top of a hill. There's a highway. They're just walking next to some store or whatever, warehouse or whatever it is. Walking. And you see all of a sudden, all the way at the end of the camera, something shoot into the sky and start rolling. A wheel fell off of some truck 
And Hashem Elachem gets all the way to this guy while he's walking without seeing him, hits him and kills him. Now we don't know what he did, we don't know Cheshbonot we don't know anything. All we know is, as you can see, the punishment is still applicable. Hashem does his will however he wants to do his will. Not that Hashem doesn't want anyone to die or anything like that. It's just that again, Hashem runs the world. If someone's time has come, it's come. So, Chazal is telling us that when someone is violating Shabbat, someone's violating all of these things, they're making a very, very horrible, horrible sin. Now, when where I, someone is an idol worshiper, it's the same level. It's the same level sin. And Chazal is explaining to us here that letting the Yetzirah control you will lead you to idol worship. How? He runs your life. He's become your new idol. So aside from the fact that any Parnassah that was supposed to be given to you and was judged to be given to you on Rosh Hashanah, as the Gemara Masechet Rosh Hashanah, Masechet Betzah says, your Parnassah is decided in Shamaim on Rosh Hashanah. From Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah, your Parnassah is decided. But, the Mishnah says that it's also re-decided every day. How so? How are you going to get it? How much you're going to get was already decided. How you're going to get it is decided every day. But one thing can get in the way of it in a very big way is anger. Anger can change the can change even what you get. And the Gemara continues. Where is the source that this is actually in the Torah? In Psalm eighty-one ten. It says, There shall be no strange God within you, nor shall you bow before an alien God. So the Gemara asks, Who is this strange God that's within you? You should say that this strange God, since it's saying within you, this strange God is the evil inclination, it's the Yetzirah. So, Back to the Mishnah, he's saying, don't get angry easily. He doesn't say don't get angry, he says don't get angry easily. Because he knows that obviously, naturally, even Moshe Rabbeinu got angry. There's three different stories that Moshe Rabbeinu got angry, and he got judged for it. So not getting angry at all, ever, is not a realistic proposition for everyone. Unless you're Hillel, Hillel Zaken, who never got angry. And as a matter of fact, it's even a mitzvah to show anger if you see Chilul Hashem. If you see someone violating halacha publicly, Chilul Hashem, you're seeing someone bringing an idol worshiper to a Beknesset. You're seeing someone that is desecrating the name of Hashem, you're allowed to get angry. It's a mitzvah. But even doing that mitzvah, you have to do it with Hashem in mind. Meaning, you're not angry at the guy, you're angry at the sin. And even the way you show your anger has to be in a certain way. So he's telling you, first and foremost, understand what I'm saying here. It's not don't get angry, don't get angry easily. Don't be a hothead where every time somebody cuts you off, you want to kill him. Or every time your wife says something you, don't, you can't hear her, 
you want to throw the remote control at her. Or every time your kids are making noise, you want to lock them into a room and see them next week. Don't be one of these crazy people. Know how to control your anger. Why know how to control your anger? Because as soon as you stop controlling your anger, you will no longer be able to fulfill the mitzvah of honoring your friend as much as you honor yourself. It's impossible to honor your friend, whether that friend, that fellow, is your wife, your husband, your colleague, your boss, your rabbi, anyone. As soon as you're not able to control your anger, there's no more honor. And this is actually one of the foundations of people that have problems with Shlom Bayit. Not every couple has a hothead in there. Some people just don't care. Some people are lethargic. Some people are just in a different world. There's different problems. Different couples have different problems. But the root of the problem of marriages that have serious, serious problems is when there's no longer respect. When the husband doesn't respect the wife or the wife doesn't respect the husband, marriage is over. They could stay married. Stay married 500 years, but it'll be an unhappy marriage. As soon as the husband looks at the wife as if she's less than him, or the wife looks at the husband as if he's less than her, or he's a loser, or he's a bum, marriage is over. Of course, you can fix it. I'm not saying go get a divorce as soon as you, are, you, you have a problem with your husband or your, or your wife. But it can never be a happy marriage if there's no respect for each other. It can never be a happy marriage. And one of the things that causes this lack of respect is when people are very easily angered. Even if they're not necessarily easily angered at their wife, even if it takes them a while to get angry at their wife or it takes them a while to get angry at their husband, even if it takes them a while. But if they're overall known as a hothead, whenever that one time happens where they're angry at the wife or the husband, that one time breaks all boundaries, especially in the mind of a woman. A guy typical guy gets angry five minutes later I'll have a beer with you they'll get angry sometimes you'll even have a fist fight you have sometimes you have these uh, crazy UFC fighters they beat the hell out of each other at the end they hug they fight for 15 minutes trying to kill each other or these boxers they try to kill each other for an hour and a half and at the end of the fight they hug each other and kiss each other I never understood it. My wife always, you know, made fun of it. But the point is that I understand the mentality of a guy. I remember at the end of football games when I was in high school, I used to play football. Even though we tried to kill each other for three hours. At the end of the game, you shake each other's hands. You're best friends. It's the mind of a man. We're a little retarded. But a woman, a scorned woman... She'll remember what you did to her in kindergarten. Oh, you pulled my hair. When? In 1953. Yeah, he was four years old. You were the only girl in the school. So that's why he pulled your hair. Yeah, I hate him. What did he do for? Yeah, I just don't like him. It was 1953. A scorned woman will remember it forever. So, that one time, you have a choice to make. Yitzhah says, look, your wife just yelled at you. Yell back. 
And mention her mother too. <laughs> Give it to her. Yetzirah is saying, uh-uh. Do not enter. Do not enter. Mayday, mayday. If you listen to the Yetzirah, you're chipping away your marriage. You do that enough time, your marriage will be over. Sometimes you see couples, they're married for 25 years, miserable. Why? Because in the first five years, somebody wasn't able to control themselves, they chipped away enough at the marriage where the spouse said, you know what, the heck with them. Whatever, I have a couple of kids with them, I'll stay married, but there's no love, there's no real... All happy times, vacation with the friends. Vacation with the family. Never really any real intimacy, never real happiness together. All the happiness is somewhere else. Why? Because honor was lost at some point. So honoring your fellow doesn't necessarily only mean honoring your, your buddy or uh, your chavruta. It also means honoring your spouse. Now, Chazal in the Gemara Masechet Yehuvin says that there are three things that you can judge a man by. Three actions that he does. And how he acts under certain circumstances. Now, if I came to you here as a multimillionaire, everything is great. Baruch Hashem, I have a couple of kids, amazing wife, learning Torah, everything is phenomenal, perfectly healthy, everything is great. It's like, yeah, whatever. Of course he's going to say all these wonderful things. He has emunah, he has this, he has that. He's got a perfect life. If the guy comes, he says, listen, I suffered, I did, I died. You're, suffering. You're going through genom in this world. And still having emunah, that's worth something. So Chazal says exactly the same thing. Nothing that I said is a chidush. Chazal says, you can judge a person by koso, kiso, vekaso. Koso means glass of alcohol. How does he act once he's drunk? Before he had the beer or the wine, of course he's a nice guy. Of course, a nice guy. Took you out to dinner, even paid. Wonderful guy. But how does he act after he had one too many glasses of wine? How does he act once he had one too many beers? Is he still only looking at you in the eyes or he's looking at every single woman that moves? Is he still paying attention to what you're saying or is he become... A sewer mouth. How is he still acting? That's koso. Kiso means his pocket. If his pocket's full of money, is he overly arrogant because he's got money? Is he going to be the same arrogant person if he has no money? Or what about how does he act under pressure? When all of a sudden... The 150,000 a month is not coming in, but the bills are. Is he still that nice, cordial guy? Is he still funny at work? Is he still exciting? Or has he become a little leper? A little gremlin at work. Yells at everything that moves. Hey, why are you late? I came in at 7.59. Yeah, why not 7.58? Is he like a, you know, is he like a little leprechaun? Is he like gremlin? What happened to him? Why? Because he doesn't have any money? So what? 
because the bills, because he doesn't have money how to pay the mortgage, is he still contained human being? Throwing some verses at you from the Torah that he read, you know, that he learned from Dafyomi. All of a sudden, he's like, ah, listen, I got to work. Yeah, but what about the Dafyomi? Ah, leave me alone with this Dafyomi stuff. Yeah, but God, oh, no, no, God. Later, God. If God wanted me to learn Dafyomi, give me more money. What happened? Because you don't have any money, you forgot about God. So that's Kiso. Kaso is anger. Kiso means pocket, by the way. Koso means glass. And kaso means anger. How is he acting once he lost his cool? What happens? Once something bad happened, once somebody embarrassed him in public, what happens? Is he going to take revenge into his own hands? Or fulfill the will of Hashem where Hashem says, revenge is mine. Revenge is mine, Hashem says. It's not yours to do. It's not yours to take revenge on anyone. You're not allowed to take revenge. It's a sin. Revenge is Hashem's. Leave it to Him. Yeah, but the guy just cut me off. Yeah, but the guy just stole my girlfriend. Yeah, but the guy just did something. Revenge is Hashem's. Revenge is Hashem's. If you believe in that, you're good. You're fulfilling Hashem's will. But if as soon as somebody does something against you, you want to fulfill the deed of murder, you have a problem. Now, Rabbi Fine says something good. It's a nice chidush, but it's really common sense. When it comes to money, very, very few people have emuna. Very, very few people. When it comes to Olamaba, everyone has confidence that everything's going to be okay. You tell them, listen, Shabbat, you got to keep Shabbat. Yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah, but Olamaba, no, won't worry about it. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Hashem is merciful. Hashem is patient. Hashem is great. Hashem is good. Hashem is... All the wonderful compliments in the world, they have a dictionary of it. Just for compliments to Hashem, about Allah Abba is going to be okay. Okay, what about uh, Hashem here? Now, what about the fact that uh, you own my paycheck? Oh, no, no, no. Listen. Tight. Let, let's, can you hold off on the paycheck? Can I pay you next month? What do you mean next month? I have bills this month. I have kids this month. Yeah, but I'm not sure if I'm going to make the same amount of money next month as I did this month. So no one has emunah for today. Everyone has emunah for Allah. But no one has emunah today. Everyone is uncertain of today. Of down the road, a hundred years from now, everybody's confident they're going to get to Allah. Abba. Everybody's confident. Mashiach's coming. Yeah, everybody cheers Mashiach. Oh, I can't wait for Mashiach to come. Everyone's excited for Mashiach to come. The reality of it is that most people need to really do serious, serious tshuva if, they, if, you know, instead of thinking about, oh, I can't wait for the Mashiach to come because it says in Tehilim, the Goel, the Mashiach is only coming for those people that did tshuva. 
He's not coming to help the people that are just there because they go to Minyan a couple of times a week. Or they know a few Dapeg Mara by heart. If you did serious tshuva, you should be excited for the Mashiach. If you're not ready to do tshuva, you should read Tehillim just for him not to come. So, one of the things that the Arizal says about anger, says for one time of being anger, you want to do tshuva. And the very next thing that Rabbi Eliezer ben Orkunah says, V'shuv yom echad mitatecha. Repent, do tshuva one day before you die. And the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 153 that I mentioned before, that's where it is. It says, the students of Abiyah Yezab ben Okinus ask him, does anybody know when they're going to die? They're going to do tshuva a day before they're going to die? If I knew I was going to die tomorrow, then I'll do tshuva today. But if I don't know what I'm gonna do, when I'm going to die, how am I supposed to do tshuva a day before I die? It's a good question. So Eliezer says, exactly. Since you don't know when you're going to die, you should act every day as if you're going to die tomorrow and you must do tshuva today. And that way you'll spend your entire life in tshuva. As it is written by uh, Shlomo Melech. Live your whole life with white clothes. What do you mean white clothes? White garments. Why white garments? What a, what a, uh, he was a machmir uh, on Yom Kippur the whole year. White garments or shana? No. Meaning your soul has to be white, has to be clean from sins. You're doing tshuva, meaning you're repenting for sins every day. This is also one of the reasons why we do vidui. All Sephardics do vidui every day, twice a day. Ashkenazis, in my, uh, from my experience, only in Israel, I've seen Ashkenazis do vidui every day. In, Israel, in, in the United States, I haven't seen many Ashkenazis do uh, vidui every day. That's the Tachnun. This, uh, this is the part where we actually do tshuva every day. Uh, but this doesn't count the part that you're supposed to do it also, before you go to sleep. You're supposed to do Tachnun. But you do it in general, you do it twice. You do it in Shachrit, you do it in Incha. This is why you do it. Why? Because just in case someone's going to die at some point during the day, at least they did tshuva that day. Now one of the ta'amim, one of the things that somebody told me about why Ashkenazis don't do it, at least in America, uh, is because you have to have a lot of kavanah. A lot of focus when you're doing tachanun. You can't just do tachanun, abinu, pashanu, and then you know, thinking about the baseball game at the same time. You have to really think about where I chata. Chatanu means I sinned Without knowing it's shogun, accidental sin. Avinu means I sinned. I know it's a sin, but I still did it anyway. I couldn't overcome my yitzara. Tashanu means I sinned dafka to make Hashem angry. He didn't give me the contract. I didn't eat kosher. Dafka. Three levels of sins. So that's how you begin a tachanun. So when you do it. And he goes into the details of each sin. It says that you're supposed to have a lot of kavanah. Where did I sin by Shogig? Where did I sin knowing that it's a sin because I couldn't overcome my Yetzirah? Where did I sin on purpose? Where did I steal? I didn't steal today. Oh, wait a minute. I actually ate an apple without doing bracha. That's stealing from Hashem. 
so on and so on. It goes into the details. Once you understand the words of what it says, it gives you a lot more meaning in your tefillah. But nonetheless, the Arizal says that your tshuva, a real tshuva for one time, one time of being angry, is 150 fasts. 150 fasts. What is this like? What do I explain? For anyone that saw my the uh, the shiur, three hour shiur or so, about wasting seed. As I told you guys, Chazal says that every time you waste seed, you're destroying millions and millions of souls. It's a horrendous, horrendous sin. Now the Arizal says, if you waste seed, you have to fast 84 times. One time. And this is for killing... Hundreds of millions of souls creating Shadim. Being angry once is almost the equivalent of wasting sea twice. So I'll give you a little secret. I got angry yesterday. And Baruch Hashem lately I've been working on anger for a while now. I used to get angry very, very quickly. I used to be the hothead that I make fun of all the time. I used to get angry, like, uh, woke up, angry. Went to sleep, angry. In the middle of the day, angry. That's the only version of me you know. Baruch Hashem, I've been working on it for years now. But yesterday, the Yetzirah got the best of me. And I got angry at something silly, something stupid. I didn't break anything, I didn't throw anything, but whatever. Wherever I am right now, I consider it an anger. Um, and you know what? This last month of fighting against this missionary's demented ideology, people that I thought were like knowledgeable all of a sudden are making mistakes of. I mean, I don't know how to describe it. But fighting it tooth and nail for, over, for almost a month now, no sleeping at night, no time to even breathe constantly trying to shed light in the world full of darkness even barely being able to enjoy the Brit Milah of my own son it's, took a, it's taken a toll on me it's very very hard and I honestly thought about cancelling today's shiur I usually don't like to cancel shiurs but oh Hashem I don't think I've ever cancelled a shiur yet or maybe once in the last few years since I've been doing it and actually, for the last 24 hours, I've been trying to convince myself to come have a shiur. 24 hours, I'm saying, no, I don't want to do shiur. I can't do this lecture. I can't do it. I'm talk, what am I going to talk about anger? I just get angry. I'm going to teach you about anger if I get angry. You know, the Gemara says, if you're teaching something, but you do something else, you're teaching about Shabbat. But you're Mechalel Shabbat. You're teaching about not to gamble, but you're a gambler. The Gemara says it was better that you would have choked to death inside your mother's uterus. They're very, very critical of a hypocrite. So I'm saying to myself, I just get angry. I'm going to teach these people about anger. But then I find out it's not the same. Someone that does something with the shita on a regular basis is different than a, than a happenstance, something that just happened. But still, for the last 24 hours, I'm thinking to myself, ah, I can't do this year, I can't do this year. So until about 2 o'clock in the afternoon today, Vimesh, God bless him, has been asking, so what are we going to do with this year? He's the only one that knew. 
So what are we going to do with the shiur? What are we going to do with the shiur? Oh, and Sunny also. What are we going to do with the shiur? Are we going to do it? We're going to do it. I'm like, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Hold on, let me wait. I'm just convincing myself. And then I spoke to my rav. And he's like, oh, so you're going to do the shiur? I said, I don't think I'm going to do the shiur. He goes, yeah, but that's your tshuva. And I said, what do you mean it's my tshuva? He said, you know that Rizal says, every time you get angry, you have to fast 150 times. Now, unless you want to fast 150 times, you have to do a shiur. So at least 150 people will watch it. If you teach 150 people about anger, that's your tshuva. So, Baruch Hashem, Hashem provided the cure before the ailment. But nonetheless, this shiur is actually making me do tshuva. Not only from the what I just said, but also you learn about anger. That's how you stop being angry. So, Chazal says here, do tshuva before you die. Sometimes you tell this to people. And like, yeah, it's nice, thank you very much, but uh, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. What is this like? The Gemara tells a story. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai says... What is King Solomon teaching in the verse in Ecclesiastes 9.8 where it says that at all times your garment should be white and your head never lack any oil. What is it talking about as I just said? It's talking about how you're supposed to always do tshuva, always make sure that your soul is clean. So like I ask, well what about if people not really thinking about that so much? Especially in our generation, no one exactly is uh, waking up in the morning and says, I can't wait to do tshuva, you have to get them to that point. If to convince him. So he tell a story. He said, listen, one time there was a king. And the king said to all of his servants, we're going to have a special celebration. Well, I want to invite all of you to this celebration. So be ready. But he never told them when. So the smart, the wise among them, they got their best garments and they wore them every day, made sure that it always looked neat, always ready, always prepared. The king's going to show up. I'm going to be ready. Yeah, I have to wash my clothes more often than everybody else. Yes, I have to work a little harder to make sure that I'm always neat. I'm always groomed. I always look a certain way because maybe today the king's going to show up. The fools among them said, listen, the king's throwing a party. It's going to take a while. He's going to get contractors to build a hall. He has to cook all this extra food. That means he has to go hunting. He has to send people to go hunting to get the meat. And then they also have to get the vegetables, which means we have to wait till next season. Maybe it's the fruit. It's not really that good this year. You're going to have fruit from this season. You're not going to have a celebration with the fruit from this season. Probably next season is going to be better fruit. And what about the vegetables? Definitely not the... And they give all the excuses of why it's not going to happen today. So every day they walk around like bums. They're not ready. They're just like, ah, we're going to know when it's, when it's time. We're going to know when it's time. Well, one day the king showed up. 
the wise among them were ready with their garments pure, white, and perfect, and the fools with holes in their clothes asking, Oh, why didn't you tell us? And the king says, The wise among you that are prepared can come and enjoy the feast with me. While the fools that have holes in their clothes can just watch from a distance and suffer. This is the parable that Shlomo Amelech is teaching us amongst the people. The difference between the tzaddikim that are doing tshuva every day or the ones that are saying, no, 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 I'm going to know the day before I'm going to die. I'm going to do tshuva the day before I'm going to die. It says here, do tshuva the day before you're going to die. I'm going to wait for that day. Yeah, but how are you going to know? No, I'm probably going to be sick for a while. Everyone thinks that they're going to die in like a slow fashion. You know, peaceful, graceful, like the movies. You know, in the movies, what happens? Either the guy dies in war, so it's like instant, everyone's in shock, and everyone's depressed the entire movie. Or it's like an old man, and he gets older and peaceful in his old days, and it's like, I love you. I love you too. And they close his eyes, and it's like this scene, and everyone's sad. Like, oh, wow, what amazing. Oh, you're having uh, Titanic. Took the guy 15 hours to die. Fifth, the movie, 16 hours, 15 hours, the guy's dying. You already touched the tire ready. Oh, jump on top of, the, of the, uh, the door. There's enough room for both of you. 15 hours, the guy's dying, poor guy. He's freezing in the water. Oh, I love you. I love you too. Oh, he's awake again. 15 more hours. Everyone dies. In reality, life doesn't happen that way. No one knows when they're going to die. No one knows. No one's expected. Everyone thinks they're going to live to be infinity. That's why you have people like Kirk Kikorian, a multi-billionaire businessman. He's 99 years old or 98 years old. He's still doing $100 million deals every day. Warren Buffett, billion-dollar deals on a regular basis. The guy is 90-something years old. Charlie Munger, also the partner of Warren Buffett, $20 billion deals, $15 billion deals, as if they're all going to somehow do something with this money. All these huge businessmen, they're 80, 90, 70, they have, they have enough money for 500 generations. But they're still doing business because in reality, people say, no, 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 they, it's they enjoy it. No, it's not because they enjoy it. Number one, it's because they have nothing else. There's nothing else to do with their time. And number two, it's because honestly, in the deep, 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 deep part of every single one of them, they all think they're going to live long enough to see the deal work out. Even if the deal is for 25 years from now, like the railroad deal that Warren Buffett did five years ago, that railroad deal is not going to work for at least 50 years. No, it's just a real, it's just the way the deal is going to work. 50 years is going to take it for it to work out. You have to change the entire infrastructure of America. Which, by the way, anyone who doesn't know about railroads, not that it's a railroad education or anything, but America is like a third world country in railroads. Everywhere else you go in a civilized world is high-speed railroads, high-speed trains. America, we're still in the cowboy days. You go on the railroad, you're waiting for the Indian to chase you with the horse. He's probably faster. We're still with her. It takes you still three hours to drive there, three hours with the railroad. Same thing. 
So for the railroad deal to work out 50 years from now, it's going to take, you have to change the entire infrastructure of America. He's 90 years old, Ribonosher Olam. He thinks he's going to see that deal work out. That's, that's just, that's just a reality. Everyone thinks they're going to live forever. Even if they're like, no, I don't know how long I'm going to live. No, he knows. He thinks he's going to live forever. So now this is the problem. Since everyone thinks they're going to live forever, when they're 80 and 90, so does the 21-year-old. So when you come to the 21-year-old and tell him, come do tshuva. No, listen, I'm still young. Let me get married first, then I'll do tshuva. Okay, you got married, you're 28 now, let's do tshuva. Yeah, we just got married, let's have some fun. I want to go to Hawaii, I want to go to Cancun, I want to go to Gehenom, I want to go to this one, I want to go to all these places. I want to see how it is. Can't do that if you're in tshuva. Let me wait till I have kids. Okay, now you have kids, you're 35, 36, 40, 42, 45. Okay, no, do tshuva. Yeah, but you know what? I'm interested in doing tshuva. My wife, though, she's not going to do it. She's already used to the lifestyle. She's used to going and, you know, half naked on, on, on the streets every time. I tell her, you have to cover yourself all of a sudden? She's going to divorce me. Well, you want me to be divorced? He's putting the onus on you like a jump phone. You want me to be divorced? What kind of person do you want me to be divorced? Didn't it say in your Torah, Shlom Bait? The Yetzirah manipulates his brain to such a way where he thinks he's a tzaddik. It's like I gave. I donated Sefer Torah last year. Hashem, Hashem will judge me favorably. He has so much emunah in his Olam Abba, that his Olam Azeps, I can do whatever I want. I have a get out of jail free card. So now, when you hear horror stories, like my cousin, distant cousin that unfortunately at 24 years old, I think he was, 21 or 24 years old, may Hashem have mercy on him, just died three months ago. One day he was perfectly healthy, he went on his scooter, I don't know whatever a 24 year old on a scooter is doing, but the point is that he went on a scooter, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, fell off the scooter, hurt his head, went to the hospital, they took CAT scans, x-rays, all this scan stuff, said, perfectly fine. He went home, he went to sleep, and never woke up. Now, do you think that him, his parents, his friends, his, his anyone, Ever thought that such a horrible, horrible thing is going to happen? To a 20-year-old? To a 25-year-old? No. No one in their right mind will think, Ah, this 24-year-old amazing cute kid, his, t- his clock is over. So Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkanos is telling you something here. Shuv yom echad lifnei mitatecha, do tshuva a day before you're going to die. He doesn't mean it literally, do tshuva a day before you're going to die, like you're going to know you're going to die tomorrow. The fact that you don't know when that day is going to be means you should spend your entire life doing tshuva. You did tshuva five years ago, you're doing tshuva again today. You were born religious with the Hasidic cap on your head, you're doing tshuva today. Your father's a rabbi, good fam, you do tshuva today. You're a rabbi, do tshuva today. You started keeping Shabbat last week, do Shabbat today. You started keeping Shabbat 20 years ago, do Shabbat today. 
Everyone has to do tshuva today. That's what he's saying here. And the last part of why anger is one of the things that hurts someone's tshuva. The Ramban, in his commentary on Exodus 13.16, he says the following, Everything that happens to a man is part of a divine plan. There's no such thing as coincidence or accident. Even when a man is harmed by his fellow, it is an expression of God's will, with the perpetrator acting merely as a heavenly messenger. It's exactly what we just said about the Holocaust. There's no such thing as accident. There's no such thing as something happening because Hashem just stopped paying attention to it. Anything that happens in your life, that means Hashem is talking to you. Got a flat tire? Hashem is talking to you. Your wife yelled at you? Hashem is talking to you. Your husband cheated on you? Hashem is talking to you. Someone died? Hashem is talking to you. Everything and anything that happened in this world or will happen or happened or is happening... Hashem is talking to you. It's just that you're not Moses, so He's not talking to you in simple language. He's talking to you in actions. When one becomes angry with another person or takes revenge on him for a wrong, someone cut him off, someone hurt him, someone stole his money, whatever, something happened, and you want to take revenge, this person is assuming that his fellow had an independent ability to harm him in the first place and does not take God's will into account. Meaning by somebody just doing something to you and you're getting angry at them, in essence you're saying that he did it on himself. It's not God. He did it. He stole my money. He cheated me. He did. He did. She did. No, 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 my friend. God did. He just used him as a tool. You're a problem? Talk to him, not him. Train. They got embarrassed. Said, look, we're coming on time at least. The Indians It's coming, it's coming. Watch the horse. So the Ramba. Amen. So, so the Rambam continues. Otherwise, he would look to God as the source of his trouble and would have no reason to be angry with the person who hurt him. Such anger is a form of idolatry because he assigns independent power to another human being when there is really no such thing. Therefore, we're taught not to become angry easily it is a form of denial of the source of all events in the world. There's no such thing as he broke your heart. There's no such thing as they're cheating you. There's no such thing as anything happening without Hashem putting a signature on it. Including your DNA. No such thing. This changes if you really take this into serious perspective in Mamash Mitzbonen like you start thinking about this thought deeply that the Ramban just gave it to us 
there's really no reason to ever be angry. If you keep this here, if it's over here, if it's in your pocket, if it's in the books on the shelf, of course, you're going to get angry every day. But if you constantly keep it here, on top of your mind, say everything is from Hashem. Just like Rabbi Akiva said at the end of Masechet Brachot, Kol Everything that the merciful one does, he does for the best. Meaning there's no such thing as Hashem doing something purely to hurt us. Everything that he does is the best possible choice, including death, murder, disease, holocaust, pogroms, the worst things on earth. This of course does not mean that we cheer on when it happens. We're definitely not at that level. Rabbi Akiva, on the other hand, saw the Bet HaMikdash being destroyed, and he laughed. Why? Because he said, just like the prophecy that Hashem promised us that if we don't go his way, he's going to destroy the Bet HaMikdash, that means that the other prophecy of him bringing the Mashiach is also going to come true. So he laughed while it was happening, because he was at that level. We're not even a shoe. But nonetheless, if we can get ourselves to understand that everything that Hashem does is for the good, at the very least, we can start controlling our anger to a point of not getting angry easily. Now, the last part of this Mishnah is when Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos talks about the relationship a person needs to have with a sage, a rav, someone that he can learn from. Now first and foremost it says, Warm yourself by the fire of the sages, merely meaning, warm yourself by the fire of the sages. Tiferet uh, Israel says that simply learning from books, like a lot of people try to just learn from books. They take a book, and they learn from there. They don't want to have a connection with a Rav. They don't want to do anything else. They just want to learn from books. Rashi, Allah Shalom, says, you want friends? Get books. Get Sifre Torah. But he doesn't say, you want a Rav? Get a book. He says, you want friends? Because everyone has to make themselves a Rav. They have to be close to a Rav. Because Chazal is telling us here, that merely learning from books or even listening to the words of the wise is insufficient. Just listening to some shiur Torah here and there or reading a book that somebody wrote, that by itself is not enough. It's not enough for you to work on your midot by simply learning from a book. It's not enough for you to work on your anger by simply watching a lecture. It's not enough. It's not enough for you to get to a point where you could have Kavod for your wife or your spouse in general by never being angry, by doing tshuva on a daily basis just because you read a really good book that motivates you. Maybe it motivated you for six months, maybe it motivated you for even six years. But that by itself is going to be insufficient. That's why it says you have to be mitchamen. Get yourself warmed up by the fire of the sages because one has to cultivate a more intimate relationship with the sages in order to, meaning how do you, how do you have develop a warm relationship? You have to get closer to them. So the guy that wrote the book, great. Send him an email. Develop a friendship with him if he's local. Go to his shiurs. Start having a dialogue with him. Just reading his book is nice. 
listening to this CD is nice, but it's not enough. You have to have a relationship with this righteous person that you have, this Rav. Perhaps uh, he's your Kehilaz Rabbi. You can't say, oh yeah, I see him every Shabbat, you know, and I say hi to him on the way in and goodbye on the way out. That's not a relationship. Real relationship is he knows your ups, he knows your downs, he knows what's going on in your life, he knows that you're having slumbite issues, he knows you're having parnassi issues, he knows what's going on in your life. You're honest with him. So if you're lying to him and you pretend like you're a tzaddik, so he's not going to spend too much time with you. It's like, oh, he's a tzaddik, I have nothing to do, I have nothing to help him with. Maybe he can help me. It's the same thing when you finish a shiur. Sometimes I finish a shiur. I say, any questions? And there's no questions. So, I think to myself, why? Everybody knows the entire Torah? No one has any questions, no one has any doubts. Everyone is complete with their emunah. It's perfect. They know all the halachot. They know everything I just said. They remember everything I just said. It says no questions. Everyone understands everything. That's really what it means. You ask people, you have any questions? It could potentially, you know, if they say there's no questions... They know everything. But in reality, I know it's because I've been talking for three hours. So you guys are tired. You just want to go home. So, Chazal is telling us here, develop a warm relationship with the sages. But it specifically says, Mitchamem. Mitchamem, Avalo Nisraf. Make sure that you get close to them to develop a warm relationship with them, but don't get too close. Why don't get too close? Because your rabbi is not supposed to be your friend. You're not supposed to play basketball with your rabbi. You're not supposed to call your, you know, your rabbi. Like, hey, buddy, what's going on? He could call you, buddy. You can't call him, buddy. He's not supposed to be your friend. Why? Because once he becomes your friend, you immediately lose respect for him. One of the mitzvot that we had at the time of the Beit HaMikdash was that you were not allowed to leave from the same door you entered. You entered the Beit HaMikdash, at some point you leave. Even though it's great, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, it's miraculous, at some point you have to go home. You're not allowed to leave from the same door. So you ask yourself, what do they care? Same door, different door. What difference does it make? Chazal says, Chas shalom that you leave from the same door and start getting used to it like it's the walls of your house. Meaning every time you enter and every time you leave the Beit HaMikdash it should always seem to you as if it's new. Never get used to it like it's your house. Because it's not your house. It's Shem's house. Same concept goes with your relationship with your Rav. Yes, I know a lot of people like to have a good relationship with their Rabbi, a good rapport with their Rabbi. They like to play basketball with him. They like to watch the game with him. They'll even learn some Daf Yomi with him. But in reality, serious, a serious relationship with a Rav can't really hold itself during, time, during, uh, during difficult times like that. Why? Because if you become too friendly with somebody... They're no longer an authority figure. If someone is... What, what does it mean? You respect the Rav even if you play basketball with him. I'm not saying if you play basketball with your Rabbi, you don't respect him. You respect him. 
But what Chazal is telling you here is beware of their glowing coal lest you be scorched. Meaning, you have to look at your rabbi like he's a piece of coal with all of the ashes still on it. Meaning that on the outside surface he's a nice guy, tamit chacham, very welcoming. But in reality, be very, very careful with the way you talk to him just like you be very careful with touching a coal because even though on the outside it looks like a harmless piece of rock, you know that if you put your hand on this piece of coal, the fire from inside it is going to hurt you. Same thing with a, someone that's seriously around, not the guy that's your friend. Someone that's your friend, he's your friend. If your friend tells you, listen, I don't think you should yell at your wife, you can say, listen, that's your opinion, thank you, mind your own business. I think you should come to Minyan at 6.30 in the morning. Thank you very much, I want to sleep 8 hours. You want to sleep 6 hours, congratulations to you, mind your own business. Meaning, if he's your friend, you don't have to listen to him. It's advice. It's nice. Thank you, but no thank you. But if he's your rab, it's not advice anymore. He said, you do. He said, you do. Yeah, but it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make a difference. Gemara Masechet Megillah says, just like it took Am Yisrael, 40 years to understand the Gdullah of Moshe Rabbeinu, it takes a Talmud 40 years to understand their Rav. Meaning your Rav told you something today makes no sense to you whatsoever. Why does my Rav want me to learn a Mishnah every day? What does he care about Mishnah? Why can't I learn this? Why can't I learn that? Like somebody came to Rabbi Yisrael from Salat and said to him, for the Rav, I have only one hour a day to learn Torah. What should I learn? Alakha, Gemara, a chumash. Uh, what should I learn? Rabbi Yisrael from Salan says, learn one hour Musal. He goes, no, no, no. You're not understanding. I have only one hour per day. I don't I have 24 hours, but only one hour per day I can dedicate to Torah. So I have to learn something very important. I should learn Alakha so I don't be Mechel Shabbat. I should learn Chumash so I remember who Moshe Rabbeinu is. I should learn Gemara so I know the details of what Moshe Rabbeinu actually said. Rabbi Yisrael from Salan says, no, no, no. You should learn Musar. He says, no, no, you're not understanding. Only one hour a day I have. Should I learn Chumash, Halakha, Shulchan Aruch? Rabbi Yisrael says, Musar. Okay, I don't understand. You go to Moshe Rabbeinu, he says this. You go to the... How are you saying? This doesn't make any sense. Why should I learn Musar for an hour? He says, once you learn Musar for an hour, you'll realize you have more than one hour a day to learn. And then you can learn all the other things. You understand? In reality, you have 24 hours. You said you have an hour. You learn Musar, you start developing your character traits, you'll realize you have a lot more than an hour. Because Musar is the real true foundation of all self-help. You never have to pick up a book that's some self-help book if you learn Musar. You never have to worry about any Emunah issues if you learn Musar. You never have to worry about anything in regards to lack of Yilat Shamaim if you learn Musar. It's the foundation. But if the person that's teaching you this Musar is your buddy, Hey, what's up, brother? What's going on? 
Did you watch the game last night? And you're talking to your rabbi with that? That's not a rabbi. That's your buddy. When he tells you, hey, by the way, your anger is idolatry, you're like, yeah, thanks. You don't take it to heart. It doesn't pinch your heart. You don't take it seriously. But yeah, he says nice things. He has jokes once in a while. You don't take it seriously. It doesn't really change you. Because he's your friend. He's your buddy. You had a couple of beers with him last week. Yeah, he tells that to everybody else. But to me, we have, a, we have a different relationship. He knows me. It's like you feel like you have a kombina. You have like a special deal with him. Like he talks to everybody else like that. But to you, it doesn't apply to you what he says. What he says applies to the rest of Amisland. To you, no, no. It's because you play basketball with him. You had a couple of beers with him. And maybe you spent a uh, Rosh Hashanah at his house. Everything's okay. Everything is dandy. That's not your Rav then. Who's your Rav? Rav is someone that you have to be shaking. Shaking before you ask and after he answers. Every time he says something, it means something to you. And even if you don't agree, you still do. He's your Moshe Rabbeinu. He's your Moshe Rabbeinu. That's a real Rav. It's hard to find a real Rav. A lot of people have this a uh, misunderstanding of the significance of a Talmud Chacham. They think anybody that knows a few Mishnayot by heart, a few Gemarot by heart, they uh, maybe the Shulchan Aruch, they know a couple of Alachot. They think everybody has a keeper, a beard, calls himself a rabbi, passed a couple of tests. He's a Talmud Chacham. It's not true. This is not to disrespect any of those tests or any of the things I just mentioned, but that does not make you a Talmud Chacham. First and foremost, Talmud Chacham's foundation must be Yirat Shemaim. A person without Yirat Shemaim is nothing. He's not even the Talmud in Talmud Chacham. It's a reality. The fact that they have a good memory, they spend some time learning Torah, doesn't make you a Talmud Chacham. One time, the Rogachover Rebbe, huge Talmud Chacham, he's the one that I told you guys the story where they uh, had a meeting between him and Einstein. And after a few minutes, Einstein came out of the room ripping his hair out, saying, with his brain, you can make two Einsteins. That's how smart the Rogachover Rebbe was. But he was also known to be Kharif, very sharp to the point. He wouldn't sway in any way, one way or another. He was very, very sharp and harsh at times. But with valid reason. Somebody would come to him and he wasn't a... Uh, he saw that the person is like slacking or something like that. He wouldn't hold his tongue back. Saying, oh, why don't you just go become a gardener? Well, you just, you learn 10 hours? For what? Would you even bother? Just 10 hours? You call yourself a Tamil Chacham? Do you know the whole Gemara by heart? Oh, you know? So what are you? What are you doing here, Bechal? Like, to that extent. It's very, very sharp, very critical. 
but he had some extraordinary students. To make extraordinary students, they have to go into extraordinary circumstances. But anyway, one of the stories, it's kind of funny, a true story. There was one rabbi that he didn't really like too much. He didn't. And one day this rabbi came into town and he had a decision to make. He's like, listen, if I go to his house, he's probably going to criticize me. But if I don't go to his house and I come back to my yeshiva back at home, everyone's going to ask me, did you go to Gdolador? Did you go to Gdolador's house? What did he say to you? And I said, no, I didn't go to his house. I was like, what do you mean you didn't go to his house? What did you even go there for then? How do you go to the town of the Rogachover and you don't go to his house? You don't meet him. You don't talk to him. What's the point? But if I go, he's going to criticize me. What am I do? What am I do? Eventually he said, okay, I'm going to go. He went, he spent time with them, and all of a sudden, all the students are seeing that they know that the, that the, the rabbi doesn't like this guy. Like he doesn't hold him to be a tamid chacham, nothing. He's just a, uh, he's not too fond of him for whatever reason or another. But they say that he's treating him with the utmost respect. Yeah, oh, thank you for coming. How are you? Wow. So at the end, this rabbi says to the Rogachover, the guy, thanks for hosting me. I really appreciate it. It really surprised me because, you know, everyone says that, uh, you know, when Tamidim Chachamim come to you, you're very critical of them and very harsh at times. So the Rogachover says, yes, with Tamidim Chachamim. Understand? So, when it says and their bite is the bite of a fox, their sting is the sting of a scorpion, and the hiss is the hiss of a serpent, the Rogachova Rabbi fit the bill. He didn't mess around. And that's one of the things that I believe we need more of today. I'm not saying that every single person is uh, born to be a, a huge Talmud Chacham. Some people are going to be Talmud Chachamim, some are not. But if we continue to spend most of our life being told the word Tzadikim and we don't have to do Tshuva, when are we going to do Tshuva? Now, Chazal asks, in this last part, it says, what does it say, the, uh, their bite, that the righteous, the sage's bite is like the bite of a fox, and the uh, sting of a scorpion, and the hiss of a serpent. So Ramban, the uh, Rav, explains that the bite of a, uh, of a um, fox is extremely painful. And very, very difficult to heal. The sting of a uh, scorpion doesn't hurt as much as the bite, but it kills. It's much more dangerous. And the hiss of a uh, serpent is even something that could affect someone from a distance. Like a snake that could spit their venom. They don't have to necessarily bite somebody. They could spit their venom, like I think a cobra does. Spits his venom, and other snakes can actually spit their venom. And I necessarily just need to bite. 
So they're comparing all of these to different parts of the tzaddikim, meaning that when someone is truly righteous, you have to tread very, very carefully. Maaseh Shekarai, a real story of someone I know. Some, he uh, gives out his books for free, writes books, and big Talmud Chacham, and uh, he gives, when he writes the books, Masih Nefesh, he does everything for free, and he uh, gives out the books for free to someone who's going to study these books. But of course, it costs money. Just because he gives it out for free doesn't mean that they give it to him for free. Just because we give CDs for free doesn't mean that it's the manufacturer gives it to us for free. Everything costs money. So one time in one of his books, he was trying to collect money. And uh, one of the family friends made fun of it. And this was a person that was rich. That everyone thought, okay, you know what, maybe he's going to contribute a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks, ten dollars, whatever. He's going to contribute something. He's the rich one. When he came to him asking, you know, maybe you want to contribute to the book, I put my, your name in the book for, you know, to Kedusha, it's more important than Sefer Torah. Because this is a book that you actually learn from on a day to day basis. Because, no, 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 get out of here and started making fun of him. Started making fun of the book, started making fun of him. It was very, very embarrassing. Not a week passed by, not a week passed by, and this rich guy looked at these two avayanim, these two thugs, the wrong way. One of them thought that he's making fun of them and decided to beat the lights out of him in the middle of the street. And at the end of them beating him up, all he can remember is they said, don't make fun of us. Midah ke neged midah. Measure for measure. When Chazal is telling us here that there's sting, there's a sting of a scorpion, a serpent, and so on, means you have to tread carefully of how you treat real Tamidim Chachamim. One of the major requirements of a Tamid Chacham is not just to know knowledge but it's to know how to value their time. If every spare moment they have is for Torah, if every moment they have, possible, is for Torah, that's already a good foundation for a Tamid Chacham. But if you're... Defi- you know, if, if this person that knows a few halachot, knows a few stories, still spends time watching politics, still spends time watching television, still knows the score between the San Antonio and, I don't know, whatever other team there is, in some basketball, football, or some other sport there is, if he knows what's going on in that world, it's impossible for him to be considered Tamit Chacham. Because one of the requirements of a Tamit Chacham is to know the value of their time. If they knew the value of their time, they wouldn't spend it watching basketball and football. This doesn't necessarily make it a, a biggest sin in the world to watch basketball. I mean, everyone needs a little bit of shtuyot in their life. But you're not going to be a Tamil Chacham. You'll know some halachot. You'll be a nice Jew. You'll be kosher. You'll have a share of the world to come in. As long as you're keeping it to n- minimal nonsense and not a lot of nonsense. But you're not going to be a Tamil Chacham. Last but not least... Gemara Masechet Yomah, page 22, says, Any sage who does not take revenge like a serpent is not considered, is not considered a true Talmud Chacham. 
So this Gemara is very, very interesting because in one way it seems like it's contradicting everything we just said up to this point. On one hand you're telling us be respectful for your fellow. One of the things that's required is to not be angry. Revenge only happens if you're angry. Then it says, do tshuva. If you're doing revenge, you're going to have to do tshuva. You're not even starting with the tshuva. Then it says, be close to the tamidim chachamim, but be careful from them. But it says here that if you don't take revenge, you're not a tamid chacham. So this whole thing, this, this gemara in Masechet Yoma, just takes everything we just learned for the last however much time we've been talking and turns it all upside down. So what does it really mean? A serpent, snake, was the first thing that was ever created that actually committed the first sin. The first sin that ever happened in the world was from the snake, the serpent. What was the sin? The Shonara against God. It wasn't the sin of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of knowledge. That was the first sin. That was the next sin. The first sin, the original sin, was the serpent saying to Chava, saying to Eve, Oh, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree of knowledge because he's scared. And look, he said, don't touch the tree. Look, you just touched the tree. God never said you can't touch the tree. He said, just, just don't eat from it. So he said, Lashon Allah made up stories about God. And this is the reason why Hashem cursed them with the worst possible curse in the Torah. He called them Ahu. Ahu means cursed. This is also something that if you look at the uh, Parashat Bechukotai and Kitavo and a few other places in the Torah, when we are actually, when the Shvatim, when the uh, tribes are in two different mountains, they say, blessed is the person that did X, Y, Z. And then the other ones are saying, on the other mountain, saying, Ahu, cursed is the man that does X, Y, Z. One of the things that someone gets the cursed, just like the snake, is by doing a sin in hiding. Meaning, he tells everybody he's a tzaddik, but in reality he goes home and watches TV on Shabbat. Or he tells everyone he's a tzaddik, but in reality he's stealing from his employees. Or he's stealing from someone else. That person is Ahu. Someone that actually cancels the Shio Torah without a valid reason is considered Ahu also. So nonetheless, being Ahu was a big deal. The serpent was Ahu. The snake was Ahu. But part of that curse was that from that moment on, not only is he not going to be the king of all the animals, because originally he was supposed to be the king. The job was then given to the lion. But not only is he not going to be the most beautiful animal, not only is he not going to be the king of, of the animals, not only is the woman always going to hate the snake unless she's extremely unusual. Like in today's generation, some women like snakes, but in general, women hate snakes. Not only that, he's never going to have the pleasure of tasting food for what it is, because everything will taste to him like sand. That's the real curse. So Chazal and Gemara Masechet Yoma said a Torah sage who doesn't take revenge like a serpent is not considered a Talmid Chacham 
The Baal Shem Tov says, gives the piush on this. Says the result of God's curse, the serpent tastes everything like dust. And he has no pleasure from anything, from anything he eats, whether it's a rat or it's pizza or it's a piece of metal, everything tastes the same. A true Tamit Chacham similarly reacts sharply only when one scorns the honor of the Torah and not out of pleasurable sense of a personal vendetta. Like the serpent, his hiss is deadly, but he derives no pleasure from his bite. Tamit Chacham, he sees someone desecrating the Torah, going against Hashem, doing something that's mamash against the Torah, he must stand firm. He must go against it. He can't sit there like a little tatale waiting for things to stop. He sees Chilul Hashem happening, he must fight it. Every one of us has to be a little bit of Pinchas. You can't just sit there and say, oh no, no, it's somebody else who will take care of it. That's Hashem's will, it's Hashem's will. What's Hashem's will? Hashem's will is to bring a missionary to a synagogue. Hashem's will is to convert people to Christianity. Hashem's will is to desecrate the Torah. No, that's not Hashem's will. That's the Yetzirah's will. You have to do something about it. So Tamit Chacham is going to fight, but he's not going to enjoy the fight. He's not going to enjoy the fact that there's a bunch of fools saying they're going to donate to a church. He's not going to enjoy that people made such a horrible mistake and now anyone that has a little bit of a brain is questioning their overall ideology. He's not enjoying this. He's not enjoying it, but he must do it. He must do it because he is a Talmud Chacham. He's not enjoying it because just like the serpent was not allowed to enjoy his food, he is being known here and mentioned here as being a, a, like a serpent. That's the trait of the serpent that Talmud Chacham has to take. Not enjoying the fight, but knowing that he has to do it. Any questions? Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.